Welcome to this podcast series produced by the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee of the University of Edinburgh in collaboration with Teaching Matters. We will hear from different academics at the university talking about what decolonizing the curriculum means for them and how they have put this into practice in their learning and teaching or research. They also share some findings and readings they have found useful. The hope is that the podcast will provide ideas, stimulate thinking and dialogue, as well as building a network of academics in the university who are interested and engaged in offering an anti-racist, a decolonized and inclusive curriculum. If you're interested in contributing a podcast to this series, please get in touch with Emily Senna or Johanna Halton, co-conveners of the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee. To get in touch with Emily, email her at emily.senna at ed.ac.uk and to contact Johanna, email johanna.halton at ed.ac.uk. Thank you for listening. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. We could start with a brief introduction of yourself, Shadab. That would be great. Thank you for having me. My name is Dr. Shadab Rahmatullah, and I'm a lecturer in Islamic Studies and Christian-Muslim Relations at the School of Divinity. I'm a Canadian Muslim of Indian descent, and something really interesting about me is that before I joined the University of Edinburgh two years ago, I was a professor at the University of Jordan, and I taught there for six years. Thanks so much. Um, could you talk to us about what decolonizing means to you? So for me, decolonization is really a discussion about power. Decolonization is about robbing knowledge of its neutrality, robbing it of its innocence and showing how knowledge is always produced in a social context. And the main point is that no social context is a context of equality. Our world is shaped by hierarchies, inequality and exclusion. So decolonizing knowledge is about locating knowledge within power relations and understanding that the knowledge that we have is mediated through the lived experiences of the privileged centers of our society, whether those centers revolve around categories of race, class, gender, sexuality, time, place, language, culture, and so forth. So I see decolonization as a two-part process. The first part is about deconstructing knowledge, that is to say, exposing it for its subjectivity, that there is no objectivity. And secondly, about reconstructing new forms of knowing and being from the neglected margins of society. So shifting the mediator of what we know from the center to the forgotten edges. So that's the first point, that it's about talking about power. The second point that I want to drive home is that for me, decolonization is really the responsibility of the colonizer. It is the responsibility of the perpetrator. I see decolonization as a reflexive exercise. And in academics, it's a bougie space. Reflexive simply means reflective. A reflective exercise in which the colonizer, the perpetrator, looks in the mirror and tries to exercise the demons of empire. Let me give a concrete example to flesh that out. I said that I am a Canadian Muslim. I come from a beautiful city named Vancouver, and that beautiful city has a very bloody, bloody history. 
Vancouver is named after George Vancouver, who was an 18th century British officer in the Royal Navy. And Vancouver, like Canada as a whole, is a settler colony. Vancouver is built on indigenous Coast Salish land. And so decolonization, when I talk about exercising the demons of empire, decolonization is about Canadians in general and Vancouverites in particular acknowledging the settler coloniality of this geography, acknowledging that the Canadian nation state is built on the blood of indigenous people. And this is not just an acknowledgement, a reflexivity of the past, it's very much alive today. We need to understand that because of that settler colonial legacy, because of that historic dispossession, today indigenous peoples are without question the most marginalized community in Canada. One in four indigenous people live in poverty, that's 25%. And that number is exacerbated when we talk about indigenous children. 40% of indigenous children live in poverty. This is what it means to talk about decolonization. It's about connecting the past to the present. How have you um, taken this forward as part of your learning and teaching and your research? So my research focuses on Islamic liberation theology. And in a nutshell, I'm really interested in how marginalized groups in a Muslim context have shaken up the canon from different perspectives and vantage points. So for example, my book, Quran of the Oppressed, Liberation Theology and Gender Justice in Islam, it explores how two feminist theologians and two liberation theologians in different parts of the Muslim world, India, Pakistan, Black America, and South Africa, have reread the Quran in the light of their own experiences of dehumanization and social marginalization. And here, I'm really interested in questions of method. And I think method is really core to decolonization. It's not simply about the knowledge that we produce, but how is that knowledge produced? And why are certain methods seen as authoritative while other methods are dismissed as being quote-unquote subjective? So in a nutshell, that's what my book, Quran of the Oppressed, is all about. And my second book, which is still in the process of being researched and written, really shifts to what I talked about earlier. It's called Islam and Native American Suffering. And it's all about Canadian Muslims, but also Muslims in other settler colonial contexts, the United States, New Zealand, Australia, really thinking seriously about their complicity, even though they are immigrants, their complicity in settler colonialism. What does it mean to be someone who lives on stolen land? What are my responsibilities to the indigenous peoples of the land? Um, and so these are the questions that I grapple with in this second book. Now, I really love research-led teaching. So I'll just give you a concrete example from one of the courses that I teach. And this is a level 10 course. So a course designed for third and fourth year students. And the title of this course is God of the Oppressed, Liberation Theologies in Christianity and Islam. And in this course, we ask the question, how have oppressed groups reclaimed religion? So how have they wrestled authoritative understanding and meaning from the privileged center, 
whether we're speaking about men or white interpreters of the Bible and so on and so forth, how have they wrestled that interpretive authority from the center and reclaimed it as members of marginalized groups living on the edges of society. And this class looks at a number of different categories, class, race, empire, and gender, and it's comparative. We're thinking comparatively across Christian and Muslim traditions. A big takeaway of this course is that religion is not neutral. Religion is not innocent. Religion is the product of interpretation. And I think the takeaways that are really taken away are not the takeaways that students read in a book. It's the takeaways that they produce dialogically in discussions among themselves in which they reflect on their own social context. So here's a concrete example of a question that I throw out in week three of semester one. Provide a concrete example of how an understanding of religion is produced from a privileged perspective and deconstruct it. And I understand that not all divinity students are coming from a theological background. So I tell them, feel free to go beyond religious examples when engaging this question. And frankly, some of the best examples come outside of religion. So one very memorable example that a student produced was a critique of the COVID discourse of working from home. And she said, I don't relate to this discourse. This is shot with middle class subjectivities. My parents come from working class backgrounds. They are not technocrats. They need to do manual labor. And so this discourse renders my experience and my family's experience socially invisible. That in a nutshell is what I believe teaching is about. It goes back to method. It's not just about teaching liberation. It's about doing liberation through an egalitarian dialogue-based framework, in my case, in smaller discussion groups. What books, writers, and articles have you found useful that you would like to share with the listener? So for those listeners who'd like to learn more about the relationship between power, religion, and resistance, I would re recommend a couple of books that deal with liberation theology. So in terms of Christianity, I think a wonderful text is Christopher Rowland's The Cambridge Companion to Liberation Theology. And this looks at Latin American liberation theology, black theology, feminist theology, and also intersectional forms of theology, such as womanist theology, which emerged within the African-American community and that sought to wed questions of class, race, and gender in a theological context. So I think that's a wonderful starting point. For those who'd like to learn more about Islamic liberation theology, I would recommend my own book because it explores four leading thinkers in contemporary Islam, two Muslim feminist theologians and two Muslim liberation theologians. In terms of a broader text, I would recommend the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was published in 1965, the same year that Brother Malcolm was martyred. I cannot think of any text that has had a more positive impact on my life. And I'm an academic, so I take words very seriously. I'm a believing Muslim. The Quran means a lot to me. I would put the autobiography of Malcolm X right next to the Quran. In terms of people of color, I think it has a remarkable impact in terms of self-esteem and connecting to different experiences, affirming lived experiences of dehumanization, but also in terms of people who are not colored. 
it allows you to understand race relations. And I think what's so great about this text in terms of decolonization is that it is an international text. And that's not appreciated enough. People always read this text as being something that is particular to the American context. A big part of the latter part of this memoir is about Brother Malcolm traveling to different countries in the majority world, particularly African and Arab countries, and really making these critical connections between the legacy of racism in the present time and the history of Western empire and slavery in particular. So at least I read this text as a very international text. And I think decolonization is a global conversation. What I particularly love about the autobiography of Malcolm X is that it just doesn't show how raw white racism was and continues to be, but it also shows the agency of those who are marginalized. Malcolm goes through transformations, but Malcolm is articulate, he's strong, he's powerful. And when we talk about decolonization, while I very much believe that decolonization is the responsibility of the perpetrator, it is the oppressed that forced the perpetrator to look in the mirror in that reflective way. So this is how one forces the powerful to concede and to give in and indeed to transform. And I think the autobiography of Malcolm X really captures that. For those of you who would like to learn a bit more about decolonization in different religious contexts, but frankly, you're just too tired to read yet another text that your lecturer is assigning you, I recommend that you watch a panel that the School of Divinity recently organized called Decolonizing Divinity. And this approaches the question of decolonization from the perspective of world Christianity, from the perspective of indigenous religions, and from the perspective of Islam.